So 29% of your, of your fan base is simply not going to engage with you as a brand, right? Then we uncover that 48% are defined as selectives. What we have actually uncovered is that we have the information we need to persuade those selectives to jump off the fence. I am of the belief that people should not be suspended for their comments on Twitter. Um, and you can look at my track record on that. I said that about Kurt Schilling. I say that about Jamel Hill. As a citizen, I don't like it. I believe you own your social media feed, not your employer. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. The Sports Business Radio Podcast, why should you listen? We're going to help you learn directly from top sports and business executives, athletes turned business people, content creators, and those working in and around the sports world. Whether you work in the sports or business world, you're a student trying to work in sports, or you just want to add overall business skills to your tool belt. We're going to bring you knowledge that you can apply to your life immediately after listening to our podcast each week. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years. And on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. My guests on this week's show, Julie Ziarski. She's the vice president of SRI, Sponsorship Research International. It's a division of MKTG. They did a study recently called the Decoding Study 2.0. It's a new study that reveals some very interesting data when it comes to sponsorships and how they are received or not received by consumers. We'll dig into that with Julie on this week's show. And someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a long time, Richard Deitch. He's a sports media reporter for Sports Illustrated. He's the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast on iTunes. If I had five follows on Twitter, he'd be in my top five. At Richard Deitch, a great follow on Twitter. We're going to cover some interesting topics with Richard, including trying to figure out what ESPN and other media outlets have not been able to solve yet. What should their social media policies look like for their reporters? We'll dig into many topics with Richard coming up on this week's show. Lots ahead on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. 
My guest is Julie Ziarski. You can find her on Twitter at MKTG. She is the VP of SRI, which is Sponsorship Research International. It is a research arm of the leading sports marketing agency, MKTG. They've got some really interesting data that they have uncovered with a study that they have done. So we wanted to bring Julie on the show. Julie, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you have done a study, you and your team, called Decoding 2.0. What is the Decoding 2.0 study? And uh, give our listeners kind of an overview. Sure. No, uh, actually, Decoding 2.0 is the uh, second phase of a study we launched in 2012 called Decoding. Um, that was a study that was... Um, produced on behalf of MKTG. SRI, as you mentioned, is the analytics arm of, of MKTG, and so we handle all of the, uh, the research requests that come through. And uh, Decoding 2.0 was, or decoding, the first decoding was an actual study that uh, was done um, internally to really explore, uh, you know, who is the most responsive to, to sponsorship and to activations, how to communicate to them, and how to um, allocate assets to the different groups and to different activations. So that study was, was released in 2012. We then um, decided to repeat the study in 2017 with the main goal of further exploring uh, some of the findings that we had uh, uncovered in 2012. Now, one of the key um, findings was out of 2012 was this idea of receptivity and um, what we like to call the receptivity theory where we were looking um, to analyze the sports landscape not from um, the sport, sports fan perspective which is typically what has been done in the past looking at avid fans versus casual fans but really looking at individuals um, from this perspective of how receptive and open are they to brand engagement. So Decoding 2.0 was an effort to explore this even further, to extend the idea of the receptivity theory beyond just sport to more lifestyle segments. We actually went back in and created a much more robust questionnaire that could ask, that could ask very direct um, questions with regard to individuals' participation and um, interest in specific, very specific activations um, that are be being used across the board um, by brands with regard to sponsorship and lifestyle marketing. Um, and so Decoding 2.0 is really the result of that particular effort. So this study uncovered three very specific types of consumers. The receptives, as you said, those people are highly receptive to sponsor messaging. Then you've got the selectives. Those are the on the fence in their receptivity. They are amenable to sponsors and value their contributions, but they don't always engage. And then you've got the non-receptives, fans who tune sponsors out completely. You know, it's funny. I have this conversation with my friends all the time when I'm watching events and you know, like whether it's the World Series and you see the signage behind home plate or it's the Super Bowl or you're at an event. It's just interesting to see what kind of breaks through the clutter and stands out to you and is memorable versus stuff that just doesn't penetrate and, and make an impact on you. 
Yes, no, definitely. I mean, one of the key interesting findings of this year, of this particular study, is that we really looked to do a deep dive in understanding who those different groupings were. So not just identifying that in every fan base, you, you have those that are simply not going to engage. And interestingly, in 2017, we you know, uh, uncovered that literally 29% are non-receptive right off the bat. So 29% of your, of your fan base is simply not going to engage with you as a brand, right? Then we uncover that 48% um, are defined as selectives. Um, these are those individuals, I actually like to call them the Humpty Dumpties. And this was really my <laughs> phrase that I came up with because the selective is kind of, how would I describe him? He's sort of a guy that's sitting on the fence. He's looking around, he's watching others engage, he's curious, but he is just not willing to jump off, right? He's, he's um, much less likely to uh, be on social media, to engage with his social media. He's much more likely to purchase anything as a result of uh, sponsorship, or, and he's kind of just hanging out there. But he is curious. So he is persuadable, um, and the interesting piece of the study that the information that we have is what we have actually uncovered is that we have the information we need to persuade those selectives to jump off the fence. Now then you have the selectives, which are really those that are very open to sponsorship. Now on average amongst sports fans, 23% were identified as selectives, so you have a a group of almost, you know, 25% or so that are very open to sponsor messaging. They're willing to engage. Um, they are, uh, in looking through the data, they are certainly um, more socially active. Uh, they are willing to act as a result, so they are willing to make a purchase. They're willing to open up accounts. They're just more open overall. They're very much in the moment. Um, but essentially, one of the beauties of what we've created with Decoding 2.0 is that we're able to really identify those different groups by sport. So we can actually go in, um, let's say, you know, within the NBA or within other niche sports or within, you know, eSports, and we can actually identify those individuals within those various sports that are selective, that are receptive, we can also understand, given the way that we created the questionnaire, we can understand those activations that are most likely to um, create receptivity amongst those groups. So those, those activations that are most likely um, to, let's say, work with that particular, with those individuals, in a sense, meaning that they're most likely to, likely to um, you know, cause them to engage. MKTG advises a number of clients on advertising and, and things of that nature. So uh, IBM, FedEx are, are some of your clients. How do you advise them using this data? Because I think this is what this is really all about, is collecting this data and then being able to advise your clients in the best possible way, the most informed possible way. How do you advise them to take their advertising or what they're doing and move the selectives to receptives? Well, what we actually did within the study is we've actually used, and I'm going to use a little bit of research uh, lingo here, 
we used a, a multivariate regression equation to derive a ranked listing of the combination of activations that will reach the greatest number of receptive fans. So what we have done with this version of this study is we've actually created a tool that we can use with our clients, with prospective clients, um, to help them understand amongst their particular target which activations are create the most, which combination of activations can create the most receptive fans. So we can really provide very specific guidance. Now another piece to the study was also looking beyond sport. So the, the original decoding was very focused on sport only. And we had a lot of requests for, well, can you talk to me a little bit about more lifestyle segments, right? What about, what does receptivity look like when you're looking at entertainment fans or music or esports or foodies? So we also have information now that can speak to this idea of receptivity that extends beyond just sport to the lifestyle segment. So there we also have the ability to provide very concrete directives in terms of how to engage um, your particular target within those segments as well. So we've really created a, 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 a body of work that is as diagnostic as possible. You know, I always like to say, and I come from the research side of things, is that um, the beauty of information comes from a very well-designed questionnaire. And I will say that our effort here took many months to go through and make sure that we had added into our questionnaire as many specific questions as possible and also as many activations as possible so that when gathering the information, we could make sure that at the end of the day, we had as much active or we had as much diagnostic information as we could possibly have. Does receptivity change with demographics? For example, if you're talking to people in New York City versus talking to people in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I would imagine there might be some different answers based on demographics and, and geographic location. Yeah, we have uncovered um, very interesting information in terms of demos. Um, geographically, we haven't gotten there yet, but I can tell you, um, I would say mainly millennials, very high receptivity. Now, the what we're actually we were able to do is drill down millennials as well to get to the younger millennial and older millennial, um, because just packaging them all together is really not relevant anymore. Um, so even when you take a millennial audience of, uh, you know, 18 to 34, right, you, they, they tend to be the highest in terms of receptivity levels. But even if you cut that even further from the 18 to 24s uh, to 25 to 34s, those 18 to 24s are even more receptive than the older millennials. Now, one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that that particular demo is able to choose and select everything they want to see and hear and view. So, of course, they're, you know, just by the nature of being highly selective of what they are being exposed to, um, you know, they, they sort of come out with, with very high receptivity levels. Now, females also um, more receptive overall than males. Uh, in addition to um, when you're looking at um, ethnicity, Hispanics, 
um, certainly come out on top, um, and African Americans come out as, as uh, slightly more receptive overall than Caucasians and, and Asians. Um, we, we're, we should definitely explore the demographic. We haven't done that. The um, geographic, uh, we haven't uh, gotten to that at this point. But certainly millennial pops, women pop, and Hispanics and African Americans pop. You mentioned earlier that this study started in 2012 with the decoding 1.0, if you will. Um, how has sponsor engagement shifted in the five years since you've been doing this? You know, that's a great question, and I actually had uh, pulled out some of that information so I could be fairly specific. Um, what we actually found uh, were... We, can't, we got it down, actually, too. It was really interesting. I mean, just overall shifts from 2012 to 2017. Um, 2012, we had uh, 26% indicating um, or most receptive or receptive versus this year at 2017, 23%. So um, there definitely is a, a drop there in terms of just the overall number of uh, receptives. Uh, among sports. This is specific to sports fans in general. Um, some of the differences in terms of engagement are, you know, slightly less likely to, um, we, we asked about participation against different activations, and some of the biggest drops came from, for example, downloading a coupon for a sponsor offer, so a decrease in 2017. Um, received a free ticket and hospitality to a sporting event, a decrease in 2017. Another large drop was purchased a product because proceeds went to a cause, you know, that is important to me. Um, and this one was really, this was an interesting one to me, um, but a significant de- decrease in 2017. Um, another other uh, significant drop was even with regard to social media, like the brand, um, on social media, Facebook or Twitter. So there are some slight nuances in terms of just overall engagement, um, definitely from 2017, but those are some of the, the quick highlights. So over the course of the next six months, you're going to release your findings at the website decodingstudy.com, decodingstudy.com. I know we have a lot of people who work in sports and a lot of students who listen to this show you're going to want to go to decodingstudy.com to continue to find the findings of the Decoding 2.0 study. You can also go to teamsri.com, which is the research arm of the leading sports marketing agency, MKTG. You can find them online at www.mktg.com, and they're on Twitter at MKTG. Julie, I really appreciate you taking time to join us on Sports Business Radio. I think this is fascinating. I could talk to you about this for hours. I know we're going to have one of your colleagues on soon to dig into some of the findings of this study uh, a little bit further in coming weeks. But uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. No, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I, I you know, It's an extensive body of research, and I think that uh, as we continue to release the information, everyone is going to find it to be uh, Quite fascinating. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Ergon Office, who manufacture beautiful, high-quality electronic standing desks. Co-founded by former hockey player Sam Finn, Ergon Office is on a mission to inspire people to live a more active lifestyle because the human body 
just wasn't meant to be sitting 13 hours a day. When I'm not in the recording studio, I have a home office and I like to alternate standing and sitting throughout the course of the day. If I don't, my back gets sore or it'll lock up. I also get an energy boost every time I stand and work or talk on the phone. Studies have proven alternating between sitting and standing leads to increased productivity and a reduction in muscle disorders like back pain or carpal tunnel, which cost society close to $50 billion annually in lost productivity and medical bills. What I love the most about Ergon Office is that the desks adjust using an embedded touchscreen, allowing you to switch seamlessly between a sitting and standing position in seconds. You can even save your preferred heights for more convenience. Ergon Office's height adjustable desks are available in Canada and the United States. Change how you work and be healthier in the process. Ergon Office has beautiful, high-quality desks with a unique design, and they couldn't be easier to adjust. Their customer service is great, too, so they'll help you find the best desks that work for your needs. I'm a really big fan of this company. Check them out at ergonoffice.com backslash SBR and use the promo code SBR10 to get 10% off any standing desk. That's ergonoffice, E-R-G-O-N-O-F-I-S dot com backslash SBR, promo code SBR10. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at ergonoffice. My guest is Richard Dykes. He is the sports media reporter for Sports Illustrated. He is the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast on iTunes, one of my favorite podcasts. If I had five follows on Twitter, he's one of them, at Richard Deitch. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia's Journalism School. He's been gracious enough to share insight on stage at a couple of our sports PR summit events in New York. Richard, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Yeah, thanks for the hype job there, Brian. Hey, with you. no, you know how much I respect you. And uh, let's start with you've carved out this really interesting beat for yourself. I know there's others that cover it, but I don't think anyone covers the sports media beat quite like you. I think the podcast has taken your coverage to another level. How did you carve out this beat for yourself? Uh, boy, that's uh, a good question. How did I do that? Probably based on stupidity. Would be the first um, no, I, you know, the the sports media coverage has existed long before me. Um, you know, it goes back to 60s and the 70s, at least in my magazine, Sports Illustrated. This pretty famous guy named Jack Craig, William Taft, two guys who, uh, you know, would write about Cosell and Rune Arledge, et cetera. If you go around the country, there are people like Jim Baker in Boston, Phil Mushnick, obviously, in New York, who were sort of doing sports media writing. Uh, commentary, et cetera. Rudy Martsky, obviously, uh, at least on a national level, became very well known because of the power of USA Today and would write three columns a week. And a lot of executives would, um, you know, would read that stuff. But at least in terms for me, um, you know, I worked at Sports Illustrated. Uh, it's my essentially my only, you know, real job as an adult. I worked in Buffalo for a little bit, but went to grad school in New York and then was hired. Uh, at SI in my very early 20s and was a traditional reporter there doing like uh, college basketball, uh, tennis. Uh, I, was, I was part of the Olympic team pretty early, women's basketball I've been covering for a long time. And so about 10 years ago or so, there was, um, there was an opening at the magazine where we had this once a week media column. And so I just became part of a rotation. Might have been even longer than a decade, like 12 years ago, whatever. 
So I became part of this rotation that would do this once-a-week column uh, in the magazine, which would, you know, 300 words, 400 words on just some media item. I'd write it occasionally. We did a TV guide occasionally where we tried to sort of be funny. Um, part of rotation. Eventually, I ended up sort of being the sole person doing that. And then in uh, the mid-2000s, I shifted my location to the web. And that's where sort of things changed is that the blogs like um, Deadspin in particular, um, I would say the big lead, awful announcing a little bit, some of these blogs, they, um, they started to fill the gaps of the newspapers that dropped sports media coverage. You know, the New, the New York papers where I live still had them, the Daily News and the New York Post. But a lot of places around the country which used to have a sports media writer, they dropped that beat. Um, either because of cost or because of other reasons. And then you saw the Deadspin to the world and places like that fill in. And, you know, obviously Deadspin did very, very different things than your traditional sports media writer. But what they proved was that you could get a lot of traffic from these stories and that the idea that someone like Chris Berman or Tom Jackson or Joe Buck, these were people were as famous as essentially any athlete in the country outside of the superstars. So they proved that there was traffic there. And so when I shifted my base of operations to the web, I pitched my editors on sort of doing something once every couple of weeks, like a media column. It started to get traffic. I was certainly helped by the fact that others in the blogosphere were writing about this content and clearly getting a lot of notice. Um, you know, people at Sports Illustrated were very familiar with Deadspin and some of these other places, and they saw that, you know, it was getting a lot of attention. And so... What what was essentially like a bi-weekly thing for me, where I was doing other things like special projects and, and covering women's basketball and covering the Olympics, became a weekly thing, and then from there became a bi-weekly and tri-weekly thing, and, you know, spinning it up to 2017. I've just been doing it now for, you know, whatever it is, seven, eight years or so, and the content has grown in terms of interest leaps and bounds. I mean, if you look at just this, as we talk this week, I mean, you can make the argument, you know, among the biggest stories in sports are sports media-related stories, whether it's Barstool's partnership with ESPN, whether it's Jamel Hill returning from sus- suspension and obviously being suspended by ESPN prior, to, you know, is there a, Brian, at this point, a week that goes by where essentially ESPN is not in the news for something, often self-inflicted? So it's just become a very big content play because what's been proven, and this is something I, I, I always believe, but I, I think I was in a minority until it became a majority, that people are really interested in the, the people you see presenting sports on TV, the people you see writing sports, the people you see talking about, or you hear talking about sports. So I, 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 just, I think, if anything, I might have just been a little ahead of the curve in terms of the timing. And then the content that I do now has just exploded because people are really interested in it. So many things you just said that I want to follow up on, but let's stick with you. And so you've talked about how you carved out this this niche for yourself. Now you've got the podcast, and I think it's been around for a year, year and a half now. Is that? About, yeah, about almost two years. Yep. Okay. And, you know, I feel like you're able to activate some of the columns that you write in that podcast. I love, you know, it's a, audio is a great platform. Obviously, our podcast has, has been a great platform for us. But how has that allowed you to kind of take your coverage to the next level? Well, I, I mean, to me, I mean, I love to write, obviously. It's, it's uh, you know, it's sort of the my passion and um, and what I've wanted to do 
with my life since I was, you know, as early as I can remember. But my first love is audio. Um, I thought I was going to be in radio as a livelihood. Um, I co-hosted in Buffalo when I was 21 a, um, a sports talk show. In, I won a tryout, basically, to be a uh, uh, drive-time host on a very, very big station. Drive-time co-host, I should say. Enjoy, by the way, the New York City uh, yes. sirens behind me there. A little Some flavor now. to the interview. Yeah, and so the, the thing was, like, I loved it, and I did that for two years before I headed down to New York. But, the, you know, the, the issue, of course, and you know this from being in, um, having a, a long experience in PR, is that, you know, radio is a tough business. And what, what, at that time, what I was looking at was, you know, working in multiple, multiple, multiple cities until maybe, you know, I landed somewhere and could set some roots down with no guarantees of money, salary, stability, et cetera. So I, I morphed from radio into... You know, what I thought at the time was a little better play, uh, print. <laughs> the irony of that, of course, is, uh, is pretty rich. So, um, so I, I love the podcast. Uh, it gives me a chance to go long with people. You know, the, the, the thing that, I, at least when I started, I just, I, I, there was really nobody in the space I felt who was doing long form kind of conversations with people in the sports media business. So my sort of thought was to, like twofold. It was like, could I could I do a podcast where I can get some really interesting in depth conversations with people that I find interesting because I'm a sports media nerd. Um, and then conversely, could I like could those conversations like be interesting to young people, particularly people who want to get into the business, and could they glean stuff from that? So that that was like my initial thought was like because um, you know I was teaching with my friend Jay McManus uh, at uh, Columbia's Journalism School, so I just wanted to, I kind of wanted to just do something that like combine like okay this would be an interesting conversation but also at the same time like could it have a little bit of like an academic component in that young people could hear like Rachel Nichols or um, you know Adam Schefter or Bomani Jones, Jamel Hill and like glean something from them that they could learn at the start of their career. What it then turned out to be Brian what it morphed into um, a lot is that because there's just so much news that exists now in the space I now do a lot of these like sports media roundtables right. where I'll get like John O'Ran, Chad Finn, uh, my colleague Jimmy Traina, um, you know, uh, sports media watches editor, et cetera, et cetera. And those roundtables do really good. They get a lot of downloads. And I think, so the podcast has sort of morphed into like this combination of I'm still interviewing people who I think are interesting and who I think bring something to the audience. And then in addition, these roundtables give me and these other guests the chance to sort of get behind what we're writing and provide, I hope, some insight two people. Finally, you know, the other thing that I really like, honestly, about a podcast is it just, it also gives me the opportunity, I feel like, to expose some voices maybe that don't always get out there, at least in the audio space. Well, yeah, I've really tried, you know, obviously could always do better, but I've really tried to, like, make that podcast, like, um, diverse. A lot of women who are in the space, people of color, you know, the, the industry is still really heavily skewed uh, towards white males, which, by the way, is what I am. So, like, the podcast gives me a good opportunity to also bring, like, different voices, at least to the audio space, that you may not hear from. So it's it's been great. SI has been very supportive. Um, you know, it's a lot of work, and I don't necessarily make extra money from it, which would be nice if I did, but it's really a labor of love. I mean, I really, it's something I look forward to every week, and I'm glad I do it. And I do think it... Um, it does add at least a dimension for me because, you know, if I write something, you're like, oh, this guy sucks. I do think sometimes if you listen to me on the podcast, it gives me a little bit of a longer 
which, uh, you know, reach to sort of explain why I might have written something or why, my, or why I may have tweeted something. And I feel like that's, uh, you know, that's just that's good for me. It just it, I think it makes me a more of a multidimensional person for those who are listening. Yeah, it humanizes you a little bit, too. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Let's talk about social media for a minute. I, I want to start with your personal use of social media. Again, you're in my top five. I said that at Sports PR Summit when you were on stage with uh, John and, and Chris. And one of the things I like about your Twitter feed is it's not just sports media. It's retweeting other people's interesting articles. It's sports and non-sports. I, I think you just have a, a really good ability to grab the stories that are of interest in and find them on your timeline. So I fear, you know, I go to your timeline and I find a lot of information, whether it's sports or non-sports, that's helpful to me and just interesting to me. So so kudos there. I know you've built a really good audience there. But as far as your tweets go, you know, I, I know you've blocked Ravel. We've talked about that. I know you're critical of, of Skip Bayless. I actually love those tweets. Those are some of my favorites when you post the numbers of like, you know, random shows compared to how Skip's show is doing on Fox Sports. But are there rules that you have when you're posting on social media? No, a couple of things. First of all, thank you for uh, the nice words. I appreciate that. And uh, Rovell and I, by the way, are in a good place now. We're in a detente, and I think he's actually going to come on the podcast. So that um, that should be fine. He's no longer blocked, too, by the way. Just, uh, okay. So you've got the, the, the Rovell update now. But, I didn't have that. Uh, That's good. I'm yeah, glad we've, you guys... We've, we've, I, we've, I know Darren, and you're a good guy. He's a good guy. Uh, I'm glad that you guys have uh, broken bread and made peace. Uh, I mean, again, we're not, we we don't see things the same way, and I'm not saying we're, we're you know this is not kind of uh, we're not going off into the sunset like Butch and Sunday. <laughs> we're at least we're 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 at least in a better place. Uh, That's good. Uh, we're not acting like 17 year old boys. Um, so you know, my my policy my policy is the wrong word. My thought for social media at the beginning was that I was going to use my feed to, like, um, send out, like, 80, 90 percent, like, the best work that I saw, no matter what the subject is. And then I would use the other 10, 15 percent to basically send my work out and, um, you know, so much self-promotional. That's changed a little bit in the year of Trump. Um, I'll just be totally blunt. I think my feed has certainly gotten um, far more uh, politically oriented. And the, the how I look at things is that... My Twitter, I'm a citizen first, and then a sports writer and a sports illustrated employee second or third. And so I see my Twitter feed basically as a representation of things I read, things that I'm interested in, and also just, you know, opinions that I have that go far beyond, you know, things in the sports realm into, into things that are important to me and, and what I think are important to society. So the, the, basically, I, I follow a lot of who I think are really, really smart uh, people, a lot of obviously people in the media um, and people in the media who have nothing to do with sports, and a lot of times they serve as my gatekeepers. And so I just I love to read, and I'm a pretty fast reader too. So a lot of a lot of what I tweet out is just things that I see from others on um, my feed. But you know, it's well beyond sports stuff. You know, I, I read the Washington Post and the New York Times and the New Yorker and. Uh, New Republic and and you know uh, Weekly Standard. I try to not uh, you know not just sort of left leaning stuff, but centrist and right leaning stuff too. And I like to send it out. And for a long time, uh, not sure I shouldn't say for a long time, but you know there there was a certain time where people were like, stop tweeting non sports out. I don't follow you for this. I don't follow you for that. 
And that affected me in the beginning. I, I used to, I was very much more affected if people like didn't like what I was sending out and, um, you know, sort of worried about, not necessarily gaining followers, but at least worried about followers that I had that they were sort of engaged me. And then I sort of stopped, I stopped worrying about all that. And I just made a decision that I'm sending out stuff that's of interest to me, that I hope is of interest to a large audience. And I'm not going to get worried anymore about people who are telling me to stick to sports, et cetera. And that seems to have worked um, both on a, uh, a, a level of sanity as well as a level of building audience. My, my Twitter feed, not that this matters at all, but my count, my follower count has never dropped. It's only gone one way. Um, it's, it's legit. I've never bought followers. And so whoever is following me outside of the you know, traditional tr- Twitter bots are real people. And I enjoy the platform. I think it's just, it's my news feed, which is very important to me. And and I feel like, given what I do, I do feel a responsibility to at least engage with people who are civil, um, who may disagree with something I write about the media, or who just have an opinion. Um, it is a bit, it is a major time suck, and I do have to watch for that, especially since I have young kids. But um, But I've enjoyed the medium, and it has absolutely been really good for me and beneficial to me in my career, because my employer, Sports Illustrated, sees the metrics that I'm delivering on Twitter. Um, Twitter engagement is very low, but I have a pretty good engagement, I think, in the media space. And so I've, it's helped me get traffic at Sports Illustrated, not just for my stuff, but for all the staffers. So, you know, I'm not going to BS your audience. It's, it, it, it's legitimately been an important um, uh, sort of thing for me in terms of my job and how my employers look at me. And obviously a sellable thing, too, assuming Twitter sticks around, if I ever left Sports Illustrated. So um, it's been an important medium. I, I sometimes think I'm a little overweighted in Twitter, and I, and I should be more active on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, et cetera. But, um, but it is where, and you know this, Brian, it really is where the media lives, breathes, and talks. And that's, that's why I'm in the space. So the interesting thing that's going on in the world right now is whether it's Bill Simmons or Jamel Hill or Clay Travis from Fox, several media types have been very candid and critical via their social media platforms. Simmons and Hill were suspended by ESPN for their comments on Twitter. There seems to be this huge gray area and moving line with social media policies for reporters. So here's my question to you. If you were ESPN or Fox or even Sports Illustrated, how do you set those policies? Can you set policies for everyone, or is it a case-by-case basis? Well, for one thing, I, I, I am of the belief that people should not be suspended for their comments on Twitter. Um, and you can look at my track record on that. I said that about Kurt Schilling. I say that about Jamel Hill. I say that about Bill Simmons. I would say that almost about anybody, unless the speech is just so to the point of just uh, – you know, absolutely um, incomprehensible where, where you, you know, an employer has to make a decision. I understand why employers do it. Ultimately, you work for somebody, and if they feel, believe that you have violated their, whatever their social media policy is, they have the right to suspend you. As a citizen, I don't like it. I believe you own your social media feed, not your employer. I do recognize, though, that there is a probably both a legal as well as a just an intellectual argument why that is not the case. Sports Illustrated and Timing's policy has essentially always been um, act like an adult. Do not uh, tweet something that embarrasses the company. Don't send out proprietary information. But I, it's a place I really like working for because they have been, in my opinion, very liberal about allowing us to um, be ourselves on social media. Uh, Peter King, uh, myself, I'm trying to think who else, uh, Grant Wall, 
I mean, we have, we are very clear, I think, about how we feel about the current uh, uh, the current presidency, and I have never heard one thing from my employer about that. Not a one. If I worked for Disney and ESPN, I absolutely would. There's no question about that. Um, you saw what Jamel Hill um, tweeted, and you saw the response to that. Now, it's a longer conversation about the specifics of her words calling Trump a white supremacist versus calling him a racist versus being critical of him. But the fact is, there are certain companies that do not want you to delve into that space, and ESPN is one. I think what they will do and is they'll offer a social media policy, Brian, and I believe that policy will be violated the next day. I do not believe that at a company that big with that many opinionists mm-hmm. that you can monitor all those opinions and have some kind of even standard to, you know, met out punishment. So I think what will happen is ESPN will continue to sort of cherry pick the times where they, um, they, they, they say, they say, believe somebody violated something and they will make these individual decisions. Maybe that's the only way they could do it, but they end up getting themselves, in my opinion, in such trouble in that they are the one consistency about ESPN when it comes to discipline is their inconsistency. Um, so I'll give you just like a couple of examples. Jamel Hill gets suspended for her Donald Trump tweets. Okay, I'm probably going to be a lot of people who believe that should be the case. Colin Coward, a couple of years earlier, um, sends out or talks about that um, Sean Taylor's murder uh, was a result of his lifestyle gone bad. As it turns out, of course, Sean Taylor, former Redskins player, was uh, killed as a result of a robbery break-in gone bad that had absolutely nothing to do with him. So, and no suspension there for um, for Colin Coward. You know, and again, you could sort of just go down the list of the ESPN Simmons suspended uh, without pay for his comments on Goodell. There, Wendy Nix, who said something very similar on air to what Jamel Hill said about. Um, about, uh, you know, the way to basically hit NFL owners is through the pocketbook and boycotting their sponsors. So then on NFL Live, no punishment. So my big issue with ESPN, and I'm not even trying to Monday morning quarterback here. It's like something I've said forever. They're just inconsistent with their discipline. You never really know where, if you're an employer, um, where you stand. I guess outside of the fact that they seem to, they seem to be far more worried about people saying stuff on their social media feeds than they do on their airwaves which is a very interesting and odd dynamic, but that seems to be the case. But to answer your question, I, um, I think ultimately they're going to continue to do this on a case-by-case basis, and you'll see inconsistency. The interesting thing about Fox, uh, which you mentioned, and some other places, is um, they, they, I don't find them to be nearly as, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, discipline-oriented or as obsessed with social media as ESPN is. Um, in fact, I think Fox is incredibly liberal with what their uh, their the Fox Sports One personalities can say on Twitter. And generally speaking, even though there's not a lot of NBCers and CBS people who say provocative things on Twitter, I find them to be far less restrictive than ESPN. And maybe that's a Disney thing, or maybe that's because ESPN um, is sort of in the middle of a larger culture war. But they, far and away, in terms of sports media outlets, they are the most... Um, you know, in terms of sort of policing their social media feeds, they're, they're the most obsessed by that. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., 
Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. Years ago, I worked for a very brief amount of time for Disney. And the handbook that you get as an employee is ridiculous. I mean, it's like the Bible. (laughs) And I think... You just hit it on the head. I think if ESPN wasn't owned by Disney, this wouldn't be nearly as big of an issue for them. But because they are owned by Disney, it's a big issue because Disney doesn't stand for that kind of stuff. Heck, when I had the uh, the handbook, like you couldn't have facial hair. Like it, it was down to that kind of stuff, much less you know what you're putting out to the masses on social media. But again, here's this is where they they are a frustrating company. And again, I say that as somebody who has great admiration for a lot of what they do. I think they actually walk the walk on diversity and giving women opportunities that no other place um, has given women, if you look around the uh, sports media dial. But, the, but it just you, you sort of don't know where things stand. Like, for example, um, you know, Stephen A. Smith on first take, he threatens Kevin Durant on the air. You would think that essentially violates whatever Disney's 15,000-page handbook is, right. but there's no issue there. But then if somebody else, you know, uh, on Twitter... Uh, says something, um, you know, they get chastised or they're told to, like, you know, uh, get off Twitter for a couple of days. So it, it's, you know, ESPN management and PR would argue where you have to do case-by-case stuff. That's the only way you can do it. Not every situation is uh, equal. And my contention, my, my sort of counter would be that, okay, fine, but then live with the criticism that you even get because once you, once you make these case-by-case decisions and when things are not equal all the time, you're going to inevitably open yourself up for criticism. And you know, I think, you know, in all honesty, the best policy for them would be to tell every one of their employees not to tweet. Now, they can't do that anymore because the social media metrics are too important to them. Right. But that would be the smart policy for them because in that sense, the, if, you, if you look at the last two years, generally speaking, so much of where that company has gotten in trouble is in the social space. It's not even necessarily on television. You know, there's a lot of people out there who will be like, ah, oh, you know, Jamel Hill and Michael Smith, I'm not watching that show. It's too political. ESPN. I mean, I watch as much ESPN as anybody probably. I shouldn't say anybody in the country, but certainly I'm in the 98th percentile. This show is not, you know, you're not watching every day like conversations about Brexit, North Korea, and Angela Merkel. It, ironically enough, is a very apolitical network for the most part, except in very small pockets. But where they are overtly political is on social media, where they're where they have a, I would say, 25 employees, 30 employees, high profile, front facing who are very, very forward about what they believe in terms of social issues, in terms of legal issues, in terms of race issues. So that's where a lot of this lies. But the, the real irony is they're not, as a general rule, like 
a very political network on air. Uh, I mean, it very on a given 24-hour period, you know, it's like five minutes of, uh, maybe that's, you know, Kaepernick's in the news, it's different, but, you know, five to 15 minutes on a given day, if you include everything, including all the live sports, maybe touches on politics or social issues on ESPN, maybe, and that, I might even be high. But, but on social media, it's much, much higher. And that's where all I feel like these fault lines lie, is that... Um, is that that's where it's, that's what's got them in trouble. And I don't know if there's a perfect solution because, again, I don't know how you legislate uh, individuals. Um, you know, how, how do you tell individuals not to send something out about what they believe based on their experiences as a human being, especially when politics are so divisive now? There's several other topics I want to cover with you. I want to be respectful of your time. You often take the PR people at media outlets like ESPN and Fox Sports to task via your Twitter feed. How can PR people build a better relationship with you? Do you is it when you're critical of them? Is it because you feel like they're just shills for you know the numbers they're pushing out and and the ratings and how they spin it? Or uh, what would make you I guess have greater respect for for some of the PR people at these media outlets? And I know you respect them because I've heard you say so at Sports PR Summit. Yeah, I respect them. I mean, my tweets out there just it's pure vindictiveness on my part, Brian, because I'm very pissed off about something. I'm not going to lie to you. It's just basically me throwing that out there on the cyberspace to make their life a little uncomfortable. It usually revolves around a lack of um, access or hypocrisy in that um, place like ESPN in particular, or even all these places, CBS, NBC, they have reporters and correspondents and broadcasters who every day expect coaches and athletes to answer their questions. So when ESPN like declines management for hmm. the 700th time, that's very hypocritical. Yeah, that's now, a good point. Right, that's a very good point. They have the right. They have the right to do that, but then I feel like in my position, I have the right to absolutely let the public know uh, and let them know that this is ridiculous. A lot of the stuff with numbers and stuff is just you know, I, 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 the day can be boring. And if I send something out about a PR staff, a lot of times it's sort of done in tongue in cheek, and the PR people know that. And um, you know, I, I interact with the with with these women and men every day, so. A lot of times they know it's, if it's not coming, they sort of know where it's coming from. If I'm really, like, kicked off, I mean, you know, I, it's, it'll be very clear. Um, but uh, hopefully 90% of it is in jest. I absolutely respect the position. I think, it's, um, I think it's a vital job in organizations. I think it's a hard job because a lot of times that you, are, uh, you want to do something, but management or internal does not want you to do that. So you're often pitted against sort of a fighting against your own internal management. So I respect the job. I know, obviously, many, many PR people. Um, but, yeah, I mean, especially in the sports media space, I, I do feel like, you know, there are times where, especially if you if you have, you know, hundreds of people under you, or at least not under you, but hundreds of people who are your colleagues who are working in a journalistic capacity, it's a little hypocritical to sort of shut the door on questions when um, – or shut the door on sort of uh, larger explanations of questions when when you you know you are at, when you have employer when you have reporters and and commentators who expect athletes coaches general managers owners to answer cues so that's where that lies on but I, I respect the job and I don't think it's an easy job and I, I don't I don't respect the term hack it's not something I I ever use I I think in the same way like uh, hacks or I should say flax like flax and hacks and stuff like that that. You know, a lot of times writers will get the sort of same pejorative tags that PR people will. So I, I do respect the profession. At the same time, I, I have a very different charter, 
and I have a very different responsibility than public relations people. We are not on the same side of stories. We have different charters, we have different bosses, and we have different um, and we have different audiences that we are trying to please. So, um, you know, I, I will be honest with you, Brian. At least, sort of like you know, they sort of teach you at Columbia um, that you know you want to always be professional, but a little bit of um, a little bit of unease on both sides is not a bad thing because it keeps you on your toes. You, you you have to always remember you are not PR, and you will never be PR if you're doing reporting correctly. And I think sometimes PR people have to understand that. Um, you know, on one story, you may work with a PR person and the publicity could be great for that organization. And the next story, you are being incredibly critical of them. That, that is just what the reporting job is. And the, I think the best PR people understand that. ESPN dropped Barstool Sports' van talk after one episode this week. We talked at the beginning how that's one of the big stories of the week. Right move or a panic move in this political climate? You know, like to dan- like right or wrong is not how I look at it. I think the interesting story of all of this is that how do you do a deal over an eight-month period and not know sort of what you're getting into right. with your ESPN? Um, so, like, I understand why John Skipper killed it. I mean, I think he was not, I think, I mean, I know this from my reporting, he was getting a lot of pressure is not the right word, but he was getting a lot of feedback from employees inside that they were not happy and they were uncomfortable with the deal. Uh, and again, that's not to say that there are not a ton of uh, Barstool fans at ESPN because there are. He obviously saw the public uh, discourse between uh, Sam Ponder and Barstool employees. You know, even if at Skipper's level, you're going to be aware of all that stuff. And that's an uncomfortable spot for ESPN to be in, a high-profile, front-facing woman who's in sort of the middle of this uh, um, thing with Barstool. And, you know, there's, there, there, there's blame on both sides. Barstool went way over the line, David Portnay, and calling her uh, a slut and sort of attacking her kid. And I think, you know, uh, there are things that Ponder has tweeted in the past a long time ago that opened her up, I think, for criticism about um, uh, her being critical of some women in the business. So, you know, nobody's perfect, and I've screwed up on Twitter myself. But I think the larger question about right or wrong is that, like, you know, you went down the road, you paid the, you know, you you paid for the show, you did your production, you publicized it, you spun, uh, spun is the wrong word, you put out to the public that you were in business with part of my take and not thread a line there, as ridiculous as it is. So you went all the way down the line, and then after one episode, you killed it. So I think for me... It's not really a right or wrong thing. It sort of speaks to the larger question of, like, what, what, what was the disconnect at ESPN during those months where was it that, like, due diligence was not done and John Skipper didn't have any idea as to Barstool's um, history? Was it that they panicked because the public relations was bad? Was John Skipper really personally affected by it, which is what I uh, heard and my, I believe my sources in that? So it's... You know, like, right or wrong, it's, just, it's, just, it's a tough one, Brian, because, like, Barstool delivered what ESPN wanted. And what, why ESPN signed up for this was that they are desperate for 18 uh, 49s or 18 uh, 34s, especially heavily slated males that, uh, in, the, um, in that demo, 18 and 34, may not be looking at ESPN now, maybe cord cutters or cord nevers. And it gave them, you know, an opportunity to present their network to some people who might never look at their network. So I sort of get the premise of the deal, 
Um, I just think you either, if you're them, you should be like, live with the fallout and all the criticism, or maybe just never, ever go down that road and stay true to at least the, you know, what you're sort of saying about um, your women employees and, you know, sort of what the Disney handbook says. So it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to punt the question. I, I don't look at it as right or wrong. I kind of just look at it as I'm trying to figure out, you know what I mean? Like, what, what, why did you go down this road and then kill? Like, what happened in those eight months? Where you sort of didn't realize who you were partnering with. It's it's a it's an odd one, and I um, I think ESPN will find itself getting fallout on both sides. Um, you know, uh, it'll get the fallout from the the Barstool people who are like you never should have been in business with the ESPNers and good riddance, and then you know ESPN will still get the fallout from uh, from women who are truly and honestly upset. Like, why could you even have ever been in business with these guys? So. In the end, it, it doesn't, you know what I mean? They take two losses, interestingly enough, on this one, which is a strange one given that they never even had to sort of enter this road to start with. Yeah, you know what I think changed this? The Harvey Weinstein story. I agree with you. And that's, you, 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 you hit on something that, um, that I, I probably should have noted on your question is that we, we are now in a zero tolerance era with any of this. And I would not compare Barstool at all to Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I think that, that is, uh, those are allegations of rape. So right. That is, uh, like, that's physical stuff and which looks like pretty strong and, and correct allegations. But I do agree with you in the sense that if you're Disney, you don't want a hint of any kind of misogyny or any kind of anti-women blogs or rhetoric. And But here's what I would say to that, Brian. I'm like, well, you can make the counter that part of my take doesn't do any of that, which I don't, I, I listen to that podcast. I think they're very talented guys. And they are not anti-women, and many of ESPN's women have been on that show. Um, but you are partnering with a larger place in Barstool, which does have a history of sometimes going over that line. Um, so again, I would go back to the idea that, you know, if I had to guess, I feel like the top guy, John Skipper, was not given the data early in this process where he could have known what he was getting into. And then he wakes up during the middle of last week and is like, what did my lieutenants get me into? I got to kill this. Two more quick questions. Will the subscription model being used by the athletic work, in your opinion? I know you've had some of them on your show. I've listened to those podcasts. Do you think it's going to work? I hope it works um, because I think the only survival of sports media content, at least on a text uh, sort of basis down the road, is some kind of pay model. Now, there will always be places that can do uh, not without a pay model. And ESPN.com, I think, will always exist, and NBCSports.com or some kind of thing like that will exist. I don't know if SI.com will exist. I hope so. Um, but so I, need, I think you have to have a pay model as, uh, to be a successful product for all of us. Um, whether they succeed or not, um, we'll see. They have a lot of venture capital money, and they spent a lot of it. So they have to get subscriptions in the next in the next six to twelve months. Uh, in cities other than Toronto, where I hear they're profitable, uh, you know, to really like see this as a successful business. What I don't know is because uh, you know these are venture capital types and Silicon Valley types. Like, are they just trying to build this business to sell it? Um, but I, I, the one thing I really appreciate about the athletic is, and, and this is the hardest thing now to do in 2017, is you have to re-educate the public, particularly younger people, that they have to pay for good content, and that is one thing that like you know, historically with the web, did not happen in the, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and USA Today and all these places places in the 90s, you know, Sports Illustrated included, like gave away their best stuff for free. 
And that is just an insanely stupid business model. So you have to re-educate people to, especially sports fans, to like let them know that like if you want really great stuff, you have to pay for it in the same way you pay for Netflix, you know, in the same way you pay for a great bottle of uh, wine or a good beer. Like that, that's just part of like the cost of doing business. So I appreciate them trying this because I think it does signal to the public that like good content costs money because good journalism costs money. Um, will it succeed? I give it a 50-50 shot. I, I'm rooting for it, but, um, but I think they're going to have to get profitable in some of these other cities. Last question. You're an adjunct at Columbia School of Journalism. We have a lot of students who listen to this podcast. What advice would you give the journalism students about a career in journalism, especially in a climate where more and more journalism jobs are being eliminated? Well, I mean, listen, I think you have to just sort of enter the field realistically and understand that you're going to have a lot of different jobs early in your career, uh, potentially late in your career as well. Um, The money at the beginning is not going to be very good. Uh, You have to diversify your skills, obviously, because a lot of jobs that are opening are producing jobs or social media jobs, not your traditional newspaper beat jobs or or even local market television jobs. Um, so it, it's a struggle, and you're going to have I th- what, what you know. James McManus and I do is we're just very honest with our students. We let them we bring in the best people, at least that we can get in New York, and and be honest about just the the hardships, the money, um, the, the the struggles of trying to get a job. You know, being even laid off in your 30s or 40s after you worked at a really good place. But all that said, I would never tell anybody not to do it. It's it's a it's a great profession. It's an important profession. I would argue that there's uh, never been a more important time to be in news right now. And if you look at places like the Washington Post and um, and the New York Times and um, you know and the the uh, and other public public Washington Journal, all these other publications, they're really doing important democracy saving uh, like work. So there's never been a more vital and valuable time to be a journalist. You just it's it's going to be tough. Um, but diversifying your skills, really establishing a contact base early on is vital, especially if you can do it as an undergraduate. You really just want to cold call or cold email as many people in the business as you can to just get as many contacts as you can, to do as many informational interviews as you can. Because with jobs limited, the real trick is to be on somebody's radar when an opening comes. That, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to be on somebody's desk or somebody's mind when that opening does come. So you cut your odds down to you know one out of a hundred to like one out of five. And that's kind of the that's, that's the game you want to play. Those are the percentages you want to try to work for. Um, but it's not easy, and it's, it's a tough time. So this is why I hope places like The Athletic and some of these other pay models can succeed because I think ultimately that will create and open up more jobs. So um, we need really smart young people into the business, and I think we've lost a lot of them in the last 10 years. Um, I am hoping that they still uh, that people still want to go into the business because the, the, the business needs – an infusion of youth. It, it certainly needs infusions of people of color and women um, because, you know, it's a romantic notion, but I really believe it's like an important job for democracy. Um, you know, it's also fun, but it's, it's really important and probably more important than ever. So those would be the kind of messages uh, that I would tell young people. And I think you got to, if you, if you really want to do this, you got to give yourself an honest shot. You know, you could always at 35, 32, decide to go to another career, go to law school or get an MBA or teach or whatever. But if you want to go into this, give, give yourself an honest shot and give yourself a couple of years even if you're struggling um, because a lot of people do make it a little bit later 
um, in their careers uh, than in some other careers. Well, and I would tell people they need to be like you as far as your skill set. They need to be able to write. They need to be able to do audio. They need to be able to shoot video. They need to be able to be active on social media. Like, you have to have all those tools in your tool belt now. You can't just come in with one thing. True. Although my video skills suck, Brian. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, uh, but, if you, uh, but if you are young, um, that is correct. And I think that is the, the, way to, the, the, the way to become very employable in 2017 is to have is to be multifaceted and to be multimedia because you go into an organization and do a lot of different things. Because the one thing that is very clear is that um, organizations are just smaller, and you have you have to have people who can do uh, multiple things. Even at Sports Illustrated, you know, we we you know, it's once upon a time. I mean, we were just overloaded with magazine editors who had a lot of time and breathing room and space to edit long copy. Today, a lot of these editors are morphing between the web. And the magazine, they, they have they have responsibilities at both on a daily basis. It's all integrated. Um, so that speaks to exactly what you're saying. And, that, you know, and sometimes those editors will go and uh, shoot a quick video on SI Now. And sometimes, not sometimes, they're, they're going to be tweeting out their stuff, you know, almost all day. So, um, so yeah, you're, you're exactly right in that. You have, to, you have to have a baseline of these skills. You don't have to be expert at everything, but you have to be sort of have a baseline of it. And you have to be willing to want to, uh, to do something in an organization if they ask you, uh, if they ask you to do it. But, you know, the good thing is, like, it's also never been a better time where you can create your own medium. Right. And, it, you know, you, people create their own blogs, people create their own medium accounts. Back in the day, you know, 70s, 80s, et cetera, like, the only way you were getting published is if you had a newspaper staff job. In 2017, you essentially just sign up for something like Medium, you could post a story that changes the world. So that, to me, is a great thing. The democratization of content uh, truly exists. Um, so while, yeah, the business is tougher and it's tougher to get paid, there's never been a better time to have the potential to publish something, which is a great thing. Richard Deitch, read him on SI.com. Listen to him on his Sports Illustrated Media podcast on iTunes. Follow him on Twitter at Richard Deitch. Richard, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I appreciate your time. And tell my friends Chris and John that I said hello. I will. Thanks for the interest, Brian. Appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Ergon Office, who manufacture beautiful, high-quality electronic standing desks. Co-founded by former hockey player Sam Finn, Ergon Office is on a mission to inspire people to live a more active lifestyle because the human body just wasn't meant to be sitting 13 hours a day. When I'm not in the recording studio, I have a home office and I like to alternate standing and sitting throughout the course of the day. If I don't, my back gets sore or it'll lock up. I also get an energy boost every time I stand and work or talk on the phone. Studies have proven alternating between sitting and standing leads to increased productivity and a reduction in muscle disorders like back pain or carpal tunnel, which cost society close to $50 billion annually in lost productivity and medical bills. What I love the most about Ergon Office is that the desks adjust using an embedded touchscreen, allowing you to switch seamlessly between a sitting and standing position in seconds. You can even save your preferred heights for more convenience. Ergon Office's height-adjustable desks are available in Canada and the United States. 
Change how you work and be healthier in the process. Ergon Office has beautiful, high-quality desks with a unique design, and they couldn't be easier to adjust. Their customer service is great, too, so they'll help you find the best desks that work for your needs. I'm a really big fan of this company. Check them out at ergonoffice.com backslash SBR and use the promo code SBR10 to get 10% off any standing desk. That's ergonoffice, E-R-G-O-N-O-F-I-S dot com backslash S-B-R, promo code S-B-R-10. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at ergonoffice. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. A quick reminder, the next Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo is all set. It's December 7th at the Players' Tribune in New York. I'll be sitting down with NCAA President Mark Emmert for a one-on-one conversation. Lots to discuss with him. Make sure to follow the conversation at SB Radio and at Sports Business Radio on Instagram. We'll be doing the show in front of a live studio audience comprised of special guests and college students from local universities in the greater New York City area. Thanks to our friends at Boingo for supporting our road show. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thank Thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, uh, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. 